In a couple of weeks here, Ken and I are going to be starting a sermon series on the Holy Spirit. But through May, we decided that we were just going to do some, you know, sort of like one-off sermons, some standalone ones, so that we could have some space to just talk about maybe some of the things that God's been talking to us about personally over the week. So for a variety of reasons that I'll get into here in just a second, I've been chewing this week a lot over the story of Mary and Martha. And I figured I hadn't preached on it in probably five years, so I'm just going to delve right in and unpack this a little bit. So this story comes from Luke chapter 10. And it says, as Jesus and his disciples went on their way, he came to a village with a woman named Martha who opened her home to him. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And so she came to him and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all of the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The, the uh, traditional interpretation of the story says that Mary was this busybody sister, right? She's busy doing all the cooking and the cleaning and the serving, and she's a little bit of sort of a judgy know-it-all. She's feeling resentful that her lazy sister isn't helping her in the kitchen. On the other hand, Mary is the sister with the quiet heart who just loves people and loves Jesus and values relationships over tasks. So when her sister Martha says to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that my sister isn't working with me? Tell her to help me. Jesus essentially replies that Mary's choice to sit and to listen to his teachings is superior. It's the superior choice to doing the behind the scenes work. You know, Martha just needs to calm down and relax. We women, we love to hear that. <laughs> And the moral of the story, we're told, is that being quiet and paying attention to Jesus is the superior way to be. It's a superior spirituality that we're supposed to be like Mary and not like Martha. At least that's the way it was taught to me growing up. Now, I always kind of liked the story when I was a kid because in a lot of ways, I felt like I related more to Mary than I did to Martha. Now, as I'm getting older, I think I've got more Martha in me. But I was like, oh yeah, Mary, great. Jesus likes people like me best. This is a wonderful story. It affirms who I am. Let's just keep telling that story. But then I had good friends and family members who relate more to Martha. And I mean, they hate this story because they feel so condemned by it. Because try as they might, they just are not wired to be like Mary. And they've been told that they should be more contemplative and passive and relationally oriented. And it's been insinuated that their love for hospitality and serving and doing task-oriented things just isn't as highly valued, at least by the church or by God. But I think this misses the scandal of what's going on in the story. Now, the Apostle John, he kind of tickles me because at the end of his gospel, he ends it by saying, you know, these are just a few stories that I have about Jesus, but if I had told all of them, there wouldn't be enough books to fill in the entire world of the stories about him. So I like to keep this in mind when I'm reading like little short vignettes like this one because I ask myself, so why is this one in the Bible? Why was this one recorded? Was it just to tell us that Jesus affirmed gender stereotypes and that he preferred women to sit looking adoringly at him? You know, the way I look at Rachel. <laughs> In my mind, originally, I was going to say, you know, the way Rachel looks at me, and I thought that wouldn't go over so well. <laughs> but Jesus was, I do look at Rachel that way. But <laughs> he was way more progressive on gender issues, you know, than, than that would portray here. So what's going on? Well, in a lot of the Near East, even to this day, and in some parts of Africa and in India, 
There are spaces and buildings and in homes that are separated by gender. So for instance, when I was working for a little bit of time in the Somali part of Kenya, I couldn't eat in the main room of restaurants. So I was out in this place called Garissa, and there was a large restaurant right in the downtown, and so all of the men could eat in this sort of lavish area in this big room. And us women, we were told we had to go around to an entrance in the back, and so we entered through a back entrance, and we went down this long hallway that ran down the sort of the back side of the large dining hall, and then there were these little tiny rooms with tables and chairs off to the side there, and that's where the women ate. So only the men could eat publicly while the women were hidden. When I was in India and parts of the Middle East, I was surprised to find that even in churches today, they have men sitting on one side and women and children sitting on the other. So that was the case when I went to Kashmir to visit several churches, I think it was in 2003, you know, where the men were on one side and the women on the other. I know even in Central Asia and Afghanistan, the women have a women's quarters within their own home that's away from the men. This practice of separating genders, it's a, it's a cultural norm, right? It's not a biblical norm. This is a cultural norm that pervades quite a bit of the world even today. And we don't have a whole lot of gendered space like that here in the U.S. You know, maybe public restrooms, but even sometimes not those. So I think it can be hard for us to maybe understand that it would have been clear to the hearers of the Mary and Martha story that Mary was in the men's part of the house where she did not belong. Like even more conservative theologians like N.T. Wright, he says, it would be obvious to any first century reader, and even today to readers in places like Turkey and the Middle East and many other parts of the world, that Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet within the male part of the house, rather than being kept in the back rooms with the other women. And this, I'm pretty sure, he says, is what really bothered Martha. No doubt she was cross at being left to do all of the work, but the real problem behind that was that Mary had cut clean across one of the most basic social conventions, and then Jesus defended her doing so. Have you ever said something to someone and you actually meant something other than what you just said to them? I was trying to like rack my brain for an example, and this isn't a really great one, but one that came to my mind was I was picturing my sister and her daughter, my niece, and my niece was playing in the sandbox. And she was like, okay, you need, you need to stop. We're going to be going pretty soon. Get out of the sandbox. And a few minutes later, she hadn't gotten out. So my sister goes out there and is like, Gwenny, shouldn't you be putting on your shoes? Right? And what she meant was, get out of that sandbox right now. <laughs> you know, there's like a thing behind the thing. You're disobeying me. And I think that when Martha says to Jesus, tell my sister to help me. What she's kind of doing is talking to Mary a little bit. Like, Mary, get out of the front room. Jesus, Ken, tell Rachel to help me in the kitchen. That kind of thing. And to add yet another layer to this, in first century Judea, rabbis, they would sit and they would teach their disciples who were men, and those men were said to sit at the feet of whichever rabbi that they studied with. So you would say, like, I sit at the feet of Rabbi Hillel. I sit at the feet of Rabbi Shammai. So when Mary is described as sitting at Jesus' feet, there's the additional offense of her taking the posture of a rabbi in training. Right? She's sitting at the feet of Rabbi Yeshua ben Joseph, right? Rabbi Jesus, son of Joseph. And when Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. And Mary cho has chosen what is better, and it's not going to be taken away from her. He's not only saying it's okay that she's like in the man cave, but also that she's taken on the role of learning how to be a spiritual leader. 
So simply interpreting the story in the traditional way, I think, misses the shocking nature of it. The reason that I think it was recorded for posterity, I think the context actually makes Mary a slightly more interesting character. She's not so passive, but she's this woman who kind of pushes through the boundaries. And I might even call this sermon Free Martha, because I feel like it frees Martha from this terrible gender stereotype of being this sort of task, like taskmaster nagging woman and saying it's okay to have those gifts if you're somebody who's created to be more task-oriented and hospitality-oriented, that this story isn't condemning that. It's actually critiquing Martha's determination to rein her sister back into sort of normal societal conventions. So this week as I was thinking through this story, I was actually thinking a lot less about the gender aspects and more about the ways that different people are wired, both to receive from God as well as to serve God. You know, how we express our love and how we connect with other people. And how Martha expressed her love by welcoming Jesus in her home and through this lavish hospitality. And Mary did it by this sort of passionate listening. Like she expressed her love by just kind of like going after Jesus in this passionate way of going through the barriers to see and be with somebody and learn from someone that she really cared about. You know, it's kind of like, I don't really care what people think about. I'm going to hang out with you on my terms. And so I've been thinking about how both of these ways of expressing love are part of God's character and how we each need them differently in different seasons of our lives. I think for me, I was thinking through some of the Martha stuff because I don't know about you, but I've been feeling a little extra anxiety this week. Sometimes a little bit about, I see a couple of hands back there, about just the state of our republic. You know, some of these things that feel a little too big to be able to do anything about. I know my dad's health has been pretty poor and I sometimes just feel like I don't know what to do about that. And what makes me feel better is actually gathering with friends, whether it's at their table or if they're at my table. And I think that just that aspect of gathering people in these safe spaces is really a reflection of God and of God's heart and of creating these God spaces. In Matthew 22, Jesus used the metaphor of a banquet to describe the kingdom of God. Right? It's a banquet that he invites every single person to, although only the poor and the sick and the outcasts come to eat. And when he describes this banquet, he's evoking an image that comes to us from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 25, and this is a beautiful vision of how God sees the people of his kingdom, the people who are invited to his table. It says, on the mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord, we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So the picture is of the dinner table of God where there's this lavish hospitality, right? This banquet being put on and it's being put on by a king, by God himself or herself who does all of the preparations for this banquet, right? In this story, Jesus, God is the Martha, Right, is doing all of the cooking and the prepping and making sure things look beautiful and making sure that people enjoy themselves with aged wine and feasting and there's no sadness. 
And this host, God, is there trying to help people engage in intimate conversation and nobody feels shame or disgrace. And it's a diverse group of people who all feel safe at that table. Right? All of the nations are invited, the whole global family, and nobody's coming as a servant and nobody's coming as a second-class citizen. They're invited as honored guests. And at this banquet, this goodness and the joy and the abundance of God and his companionship that causes all the people at the feast to say, surely this is the Lord. Surely this is the God that we're serving. Right? That's what we try and create we practice it in our homes, we practice it in our communities and in our church and in our schools of creating these spaces where people feel safe and welcome and able to receive this sort of intimate companionship, this place where they can be themselves. So it's this visionary picture of the kingdom of God. And it's romantic with like a capital R, right? This picture of who God is. And Jesus embraces the Martha-like aspect of this God as host for the world. So when I lived in Western China, I had a Tibetan friend and she invited me out to her village to come and hang out with her family, like meet her parents. And so she had invited me and another American woman named Julie. And this was maybe a year after I'd been in China. So I wasn't, I wasn't, um, I was still learning about the culture. Now, if you picture Tibetans, you might picture them as nomads, you know, living in tents out on the plateau of the Tibetan plateau in China in the mountains. And many of them are nomads, but many of them are also farmers. And so my friend's family farmed along some of the lower hills of the Himalayas. So when we arrived, I was expecting to get out and her son was with us and I thought, well, we'll meet her parents and a couple of her siblings and we'll have some dinner. But instead, we got out of the car and we had to hike up this mountain path to get to sort of this group of houses where her family lived and probably 50, 60 people came out to greet us. And it turns out that her entire extended family had been invited from all over the province, from all over Qinghai, because apparently welcoming these American friends was a big ordeal, and it was a cause for great celebration and partying. And the home that they had that we were hosting us in was not large. Right? So we were below the tree line, so they did use some wood, but it's mostly a wood frame with mud and yak dung that they use. Right? So the outside looks like mud, and it's just one of those homes that's built around a courtyard, right? So there's, it's like a square with a courtyard in the middle. And so the place where they were hosting us is just this one side of it, and there's like a living room, and there's some kongs, which are beds where you light a fire underneath them so you stay warm at night. The other end, there's a kitchen. There's no running water. And then there's like a little area that goes down there, and then there's, there's a toilet, which is essentially a hole in the floor. And we'll just say the contents of that hole in the floor run out into the courtyard where there's a garden which I got really bad E. coli after this trip, but that's a different story. <laughs> Probably not something you want to think about. Right, so we get there, and it, so I'm just, it's not that big of a space, and there's people there, and they've been hard at work, and they've been cooking, and the kids are all out playing on the mountain, and then my, my friend comes to Julie and I, and she gathers us, and she's like, okay, I think we're ready to eat, find a seat. So people are sitting anywhere they can find a place. We're sitting at a table with four people, and then they come and they bring the first course. Right, and they bring a course of four different vegetable dishes. And I wasn't sure what to expect. And I was pretty hungry from hiking and being up there all day. And so I was like, well, there's lots and lots of vegetables on these four plates. I think we can just eat at will. So I'm eating up the, the cucumbers and the cold tofu noodle salad, which I really like, and a bunch of greens, not knowing if this was the dinner or not. And then, of course, you can guess, round two came. 
And out came round two, and they eat a little bit more Chinese style in terms of like there were these big dishes where everybody sort of eats off of it together. You know, so the first one to come to our tables, everybody had like this deep fried giant fish, this whole fish. Then there was a yak dish and a chicken dish. And then there was another round and another and another. And then came the alcohol, which they drink an alcohol called Baijo, which I try not to drink much of because it's really strong. And it's so strong they serve it in like these little thimbles. So one of Julie's uncle, or one of my friend's uncles was like, no, I, I got to get the Americans to drink some of this. So I think I had two, because I was like, I don't think I can do more. But at the end of all of this feasting, there were probably 25, 30 courses that were served up to us that day, and they wouldn't let us stop eating, and I just was so full. And then after that feast that they had for us, we were asked to be part of the family photos. So we went out into the fields of flowers and did all of these different photos, and then they invited the whole family to spend the night, but then they, they ushered us off to like an aunt's house so that we could sleep more comfortably on a Kong all by ourselves. Now, my family gathers for holidays. We're not that big. Rachel's family gathers. Your family probably gathers. But we have never thrown a meal like that for somebody who's not part of the family. Maybe not even for somebody who is. And so for me, the difference was as they threw this banquet for people that were essentially strangers, people who could never repay them for what they were doing. They were treating us like royalty, offering us the best of everything that they had. And for me, this is as close to the picture of Jesus throwing a banquet for everybody who can come that I can imagine. Right? There's a place in Luke 14 where Jesus talks about, like, you should especially invite the stranger. You should especially invite the people who can't pay you back. Because then you're practicing doing this sort of lavish hospitality that is there's a reflection of God's heart for the whole world. Right? So hospitality is as vibrant a Christian practice as almost anything can be because we're practicing that extended welcome of God. So this week, as I've been feeling some of my anxiety rise for different you know, family reasons and country reasons, I have found that it's been particularly helpful for me to hang out with friends and for me to have people over to my house and to go over to their houses and to create these sort of spaces where we can just be in our anxiety, in our fears, in our sicknesses, and we can just welcome people. And that part of that, just creating welcoming spaces in our house is part of the work of God. And being able to see that that's actually a very important part of our Christian faith and of who we are. But when I was mowing the lawn, I was also thinking about some other friends that I have this week. And I was thinking about one particular family who I know are going through a whole lot of things. And I thought, you know, they're really not in any place where they can host dinners. And they can't really attend any. They've had sick kids. They've got some family health issues going on. And so I was mowing the lawn and I was just kind of praying for these people and feeling like, gosh, what can I do to help them experience God's love? I thought, well, you know, we, we can always make meals and we can do phone calls and listening and those things are all like absolutely things we can do. But as I was walking, I was thinking, you know, there are sometimes, those that actually sparked my Mary and Martha moment, I was thinking about Mary and I thought, you know, there are just some times in life where we have to be desperate enough for God's presence, that we are willing to push through anything that's going on in our life so that we can just like sit at God's feet and receive his power and his presence and his love. And that's really hard to do sometimes when you're feeling overwhelmed or when you're dealing with health issues in your family or maybe somebody's passed away. But there's a certain part of us that just has to be like, God, I need your help. 
right? And the picture of that banquet table is one that tells us that we are all welcome and it doesn't matter what we've done, it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter how we've treated our family, it doesn't even matter how we think of God, it doesn't matter if we've been part of like an accusing crowd, it doesn't matter that the banquet table of God is open to all and that we call this grace, right? This is the love of God and the grace of God that is freely given and that we are so often told that we aren't welcome at the feast of Jesus, whether as part of his church, part of his community, because of something about us. You know, I cheated on my partner, or I did this, or I stole something from work, and you've got this little secret thing that you're like, yeah, God's probably secretly mad at me, or punishing me, or blah, blah, blah. That that isn't what it is, that God is saying freely, freely, I am giving my love to you, just open your hands. And so for the meditation this week, I want us to spend a little bit of time meditating in a way that I thought would be a little Mary-like. And so if you're willing, you certainly don't have to do this, I'm going to give you a little guided meditation where we're going to think through breaking through different barriers just to try and get to God and experience some of God's love this morning. So make yourself comfortable. Take a deep breath. We'll generally be quiet, but you know, people and babies make noise, so don't mind a little bit of, a little bit of noise. And the first thing I'd invite you to imagine is a brick wall in front of you. Just notice how big are the bricks, what color. Just observe it. And you notice a giant sledgehammer on the ground beside you. Now picture that wall as something that's relationally stressful in your life, that's just taking up some of your head space, whether it's family, friends. I invite you to take that sledgehammer and just start breaking through that wall. Break through it like you're desperate to get to the other side of it. It doesn't mean that it's gone away. It just means that you're trying to get to a space where you can experience God in the midst of that. And after you get through that brick wall, imagine there's a dirt wall. And there's a shovel standing beside that giant dirt wall. And the dirt wall is something stressful related to your job. Or if you don't currently have work outside the home, maybe something stressful related to your vocation. Just start clearing a space so you can get through it.
And then you find one more wall. Only this one's a big stone wall with stones stacked upon other stones. And all you have is your hands. And those stones can represent anything causing you any sort of stress, distress. That's politics, if it's your health. Just start moving the stones. Like feel the strain of having to move them. As you're doing it, you can start to see through to the other side, and you can see this beautiful outdoor space that feels peaceful to you. And you can start to let your imagination fill in some of what that looks like as you're taking those stones away to get through to it. you get through that wall, find a place where you can sit comfortably. If you can, I'd like you to be able to imagine that God's presence is there and it almost feels warm like a blanket. And you can start to feel it in your body. It's almost like warm oil that's being poured on the top of your head. And it starts to just drip down your body and fill you. Jesus, in this space, I ask that we would feel like there is some kind of connection with the divine that we are desperate for that can give us some encouragement in our lives. Or we can feel like no matter what we're going through, whether we're having a really happy part of our lives or whether there's something that's really, really difficult, that we can experience your presence really with us, that you as God with us, no matter who we are, no matter where we're from, no matter what we've done, that the love of God and the acceptance of God is available to all of us. I ask that in this coming week, we would experience this presence in our lives and that you would continue to just bring us refreshment and lift our spirits as we go out to bring your hospitality and your love into the world around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.